Um, pr- probably science is brought to you. Brought this episode uh, of the Andy Lus probably science is brought brought to you by Squarespace. It's the all-in-one platform. I remember that part. All-in-one platform. All- uh, for fast and easy, that was definitely in there. Those were big buzzwords. Uh, making of a website or online portfolio mm-hmm. uh, for a free trial and ten percent off. And ten percent off. Uh, go to squarespace dot com and use the offer code Pro- probably, probably science. science. It's definitely the offer code. Um, do we have the song? No. <sighs> probably Duh, science. And then we'll kind of fade that up. Welcome to Property Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm joined by Jesse Case. Hello. Uh, so it's just the two of us today. It is. You know, you know what I was thinking about is this is the longest conversation we've ever had. What's about to happen? You really think so? I think so. I mean, we've when other, pe- other people have always been around. We've... Uh, yeah, because we, we've not done any long road trips or anything. No, I mean, we've chatted one-on-one for, I'd say, 20 minutes tops before someone else shows up. No, I can think of, a, I can think of at least one time, but I was very hungover. And that was the de- my second day at Sketchfest and your first day. Yes. When I was not in a good state. Oh, you weren't. Yeah, no, yeah. That, okay, that counts. That counts. But that was, a, that was a very long and difficult lunch speaking of hungover we should let's discuss why we don't have a guest i think that's fair we won't say who it is but we were gonna have a guest man we we're gonna have a guest um we we're gonna have a guest who is who whose career is being a little bit too successful for us right now sure so uh on sunday he was rehearsing for a tv taping uh mm-hmm. when we were gonna record uh and it got later and later and then it became impossible to have him and then Monday he had something else. Today is now Tuesday, and we were going to record this evening with him and put it out immediately. And then he uh, spent the day pitching a TV show sure. to various different networks that apparently went well. Good. Uh, he had a successful pitching day, as a result of which he is now too drunk to do our show. But here's the thing that, I mean, I, and I feel like, you know, fair enough, but we were a bit annoyed. Um, it was a little bit annoying. It was a little bit annoying. He's a good friend, so I was still like, all right, I'll let him sure. let go. But here's the thing. Is we're also drunk, <laughs> which I don't think anyone realizes. <laughs> We've always been drunk. I, you've drank a, a gallon of scotch. I don't I know how alcohol really works, but I'm on LSD right now. Right, and that, which isn't technically drunk, but it's a kind of drunk. It's, sure. If you're explaining it to a child, you would say it's a, type of, it's a type of special drunk. It's like being a special drunk. Yep. So, you know, I think in the future we need to let our guests know that that's okay. Just come on anyway. You know, no need to cancel because of your weird, you know, weird inebriation. It's probably science. Yeah. There's no, there's no certainty in this show. Um, there's no certainty in this world. Um, that, that I, I would like to, before we get on to, we've got housekeeping, we've got uh, yep. some people to thank. Absolutely. And that kind of thing. Uh, actually, should we do that first? Because I think we should do that first. Let's do. Well, that. I don't even know what you were hypothetically going to go into first. I'm going to go. I'm. I'm going to talk about. We're already something. down. We're already down to three listeners. <laughs> down still to three listening listeners. to this. But there, there is one thing I, w- I w- would like to thank. Uh, some very generous people this week. Uh, yes. Ben uh, McDade Wren, who's a Londoner, a fellow Londoner, and he was. That was a very generous donation. Very I think generous people donation. are still p- testing the limits of, of a generous donation. Although uh, Rob uh, Leipscher from Mountain View. Uh, which is right near Sunnyvale, where I've where I've gigged many a time, uh, was Extreme. a generous generous donation and two. He was yeah. he was two dollars more than very, a generous. He donation. was very generous plus two dollars. Um, so I think that's uh, that's great. Uh, 
Uh, and he also says he's coming to Bridgetown this year and bringing Gallagher. So thank you, Rob. Terrible idea. That's, that is not true. He is, I checked Gallagher's uh, itinerary, and he is going to be playing the Improv in Hollywood on the day that we're going to be taping our show. So technically he could do both. I guess we're going to be taping early in the afternoon. We're Skype gonna, him in. So or he could even he could still fit in our taping and then jump straight on a plane to L.A. and make it in time to, for his show. So I guess it is a possibility. So, Rob, you've got some logistics to work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Joel Roush from, Roush from Springfield, Illinois. Thank you, Joel. Uh, we really jo- appreciate it. We do appreciate it. Jo- uh, Josh Leeper from Gainesville, Florida. Mm-hmm. And we forgot to mention uh, Rob Howley from last week. We did. And Matthew Arnold, who set up a monthly donation. So thank you, Matthew. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we really appreciate it. We also really, really appreciate everyone that um, listened last week and donated to uh, our friend Richard Bain's uh, sort of family fund. From yeah. the, uh, you know, he lost his nephew in that tornado there. and um, It was a horrible story. Ruined yeah. their house and everything. So... Uh, we really, really appreciate that, you guys. That that means a lot to us. Um, uh, which uh, Ben Wren, by the way, was one of the people who messaged saying he had donated to our show uh, before he listened to that show and then went and donated again to the Richard Bain uh, Fund. Well, we really, we really, so, really thank appreciate you. it. Uh, and I know Richard really appreciates it as well. He's not been on the show for a bit. Uh, no, he absolutely really, really appreciates it. It's, uh, I, I can't even imagine the amount of, of cocaine that's all gotten him. Yeah, uh, he's... Uh, just from the... He's... Uh, ugh. He's uh he's currently uh he's been walking around recently with a solid gold sword. Yeah, that is very <laughs> very strange that it that is uh, helping him get through. Yeah, what is a very difficult time? A very difficult time. Very difficult time for him. Um, so yeah, and his new Lamborghini is great. I checked that out today. It's really good. Um, so thank you for helping out in a very difficult time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate you guys. Uh, what were you What were you going to say earlier, Matt? You, uh, you had a thing. Well, I, I, I was gonna. I'm gonna catch up on that before I do that. Oh, there was one, a, there were a couple of corrections and bit more bits of information from listeners. We love it when you email improperlyscience at gmail dot com. Tweet us yes. at improperlyscience with information. Uh, and someone, someone's come up with a, another uh, explanation of the below absolute zero story that we still haven't got to grips with. Oh yes, yeah. And I still don't understand. Uh, Dylan uh, Weedlitched. Uh, he's a proper I, scientist that wrote He's us. a proper scientist, although he is a neuroscientist rather than a physicist. So again, I don't think we've, we yet to actually have an explanation from someone who is literally studying the type of science that this is. But, uh, but uh, Dylan has said, uh, you mentioned the... Uh, I don't know whether it's a, a male or female at Dylan. could be either. But um, uh, I suppose it could be like that with any name. Well, that's true. But, you know, sure, there, there are sure. fewer female Marcuses. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I've just looked at the picture because uh, because his email tag has a look, link to his LinkedIn. Is he an alright looking guy? And I'm saying his now because he's yes, he's a good look. He's very he's very dapper. Yeah, very smart. He's wearing he's wearing a suit. It looks like it's a picture from a wedding. What's his name? Uh, Dylan uh, Weedlich. Well, we should we should get this guy a girlfriend, Matt. I feel like well, uh, he might be that might be his wedding. He may well be married. We don't know. Maybe he it, it, maybe he's in an open marriage and also wants a girlfriend. I've, Maybe he is after a boyfriend. Maybe he's after a partner of n- neither gender. No, and all, these th- all these someone who sits somewhere more along the middle of the gender spectrum. All these things are fair. I, I'm I, making a lot of assumptions about that. I know. I am making a lot of assumptions, um, and, and we shouldn't do that. But I will tell you this, though. Um, I do find it annoying that uh, at weddings, at, at, traditional, um, at traditional weddings, um, the, the woman... 
the the bride, as uh, is as is the name. As yeah, a, uh, wears an outfit. You know that they're only going to wear once, hopefully their their wedding dress. But it's yeah. a special outfit just for that day. But the guy can just wear pull off a tux. And I think I I would love to see a special groom outfit. <laughs> you know, it's weird that that's a, that it's not fair that you could just have a tux that you've had, or you could just go rent a tux for you know a couple hundred bucks. And uh, and then the the bride has to do the special purchase and tailoring, and I think maybe dressing like a like a suit of armor or something. Suit of armor, yeah. Although, although that would then be, well, I guess I guess you probably don't go to that many suit of armor events these days. No, but I was going to go to the uh, the Renaissance Festival's happening out here now. It, I forgot that it's going on. Yeah, I keep driving past posters of it and thinking, I want to see what the hell one of those things is. Have you never been to one? I've never been to one, Matt. Because it, it, believe it or not, it's. It's a very American pursuit. Well, it's an extremely American pursuit, and I, I love it, but I love it because I love train wrecks. And okay. I'm also a huge, you know, I, I love history stuff. And it's... Uh, so, How historically accurate are these things? Well, here's the thing. Completely historically inaccurate. It's, it, what, here's what you have, <laughs> is you have a bunch of drunk people, probably a few people that are on crystal meth, um, dressing up. You dress up to go because you get discounted tickets if you're in costume. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. it's, it's incredibly expensive. And does it have to be uh, sort of uh, Renaissance well, it's suppo- era costuming, it, or could you be like Spider-Man? Well, that's the thing, is it's supposed to be, but I have no idea who they got running the box office at these things, <laughs> because they'll let anybody in. It, you have people dressed like what they think the Renaissance was. Right. Because so, an actual Renaissance fest would be fairly boring. It would be just well, a bunch of Italian guys like discussing printing presses. Well, that's that's also the thing. Yeah, it's called it's called the Renaissance Fair or Renaissance as we would pronounce it in Britain. But um, but everyone seems to be dressing from an era several hundred years before that time. Several hundred. There's people dressed like Knights Templars, and there's jousts. But the jousts were over, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, like I've been to Florence, and like which is yeah, basically the sort of. A Renaissance fair would just be like kind of like really good coffee, and you just sort of like have have conversations, you know. And maybe maybe a dissection, an anatomy lecture. You would see a dissection. <laughs> so just... You you would go to a harpsichord shop. <laughs> um, you know, it'd be a nice. It'd be a lovely day, but it wouldn't be this this uh, all sort of Game of Thrones light. Yeah, it wouldn't be this. Eat a giant turkey leg, <laughs> watch a joust thing. That should be the medieval fair. It should be a medieval fair. But here's what bums me out about it is. It's been so long since the Renaissance, there's no one left to offend. Right. Like, it's so long. But, I mean, those are real people, you yeah. know, and, and we're representing them extremely inaccurately. No one cares. There's like a 500-year window or something where just nobody cares anymore. And I think it's very arrogant of us to think that that's going to happen to us, our time. Or it'll be completely the wrong era. It'll be hundreds of years off, and it'll combine hundreds of years together. Like, there'll be like... Um, it'll be like the Millennial Fair. The Millennial Fair, and there's going to be like a, a, a guy um, who thinks he's in a Nazi costume, but it's Darth Vader. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think you've always got to go a little bit early. If it's, the, if it's the Millennial Fair, then it would have to be people dressed in sort of hoop dresses and Victor- like in a bodice. and uh, Absolutely. Victorian but- and Edwardian. But but the Renaissance Fair, I mean, there are there are people dressed like fairies and stuff. There are things that weren't were never real, and people are just think it's like I guess magic was around before photography. That's when magic things stopped. So so that's what I mean. It's, it's weird how like magic really died out around the age of evidence. I know. Yeah, and and I feel like solid cartography really killed really killed the sea monster. I feel, I feel like um, I feel like a lot of sea monsters died with with good um, 
you know, good oceanographic surveys. It, I mean, it was a. It's got to be a good time for the cartographers, like at the point where you could just give it a go. But you just draw a vague, like draw an outline of your hand, call it, call it the Indies, and then a picture of a serpent. That was a, very, that was a very exciting time for cartographers. I, <laughs> I feel like that was the primo time to be a cartographer. It's exciting lately. I mean, with Crimea and stuff. I mean, the map hasn't changed in 10, 15 years. And I feel like, a, I mean, I imagine cartographers always being on call for some reason. So I imagine getting a call at three in the morning. I, I, I met a cartographer recently in the Bay Area. I think, uh, like, from what I can tell, like he, he mostly specialized in doing trail maps for hiking trails. But apparently okay. there are cartography conventions. And he's a bit of a rock star at these things. People, like, people are really people into know his him. maps. Yeah, they're he's really... got an iPhone app as well. And wow. it, it is like, it's almost like, you know, a Comic-Con, like, okay, well, Batman's been drawn before, but this person really nailed Batman. Right. And that's what they're now going for. They're like, who can represent this thing in the most original? They're rebooting the maps. They're rebooting the maps. Now, here's what I want to know. You go to the Cartography Convention website and you click on the directions tab. <laughs> is it good or is it bad? Because I find oftentimes that things that pitch a specialty in a field will then completely neglect their own specialty in advertising. And what, what, what I mean is like, um, like, there's almost nothing funnier to me than a really, really shitty commercial for a graphic design school. <laughs> you know, like really bad, like Tron graphics and uh, just bad, <laughs> bad, bad, um, you know, 8-bit music. And come to the Nosy School of Graphic Design. It's like Lawnmower Man. Yes, yeah, so when you see universities that still have terrible websites. Right. And you just go, oh, you, you're, you're meant to have the best brain. You're advertising the best brains in the country. Yeah. And someone just saved a website in Microsoft Word as like HTML and uploaded it. Right. And that's the, that's the Harvard site. Yeah. Yeah. They should be using, uh, well, I'll do it later. Uh, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, yeah. The Renaissance Fair come, happening right now. How do we even get into that, Matt? This is what happens when we don't have Andy to, to, to get us back on topic. Keep us on track. Uh, oh, I know, I know exactly how we got. We were in the process of giving Dylan's explanation to. Uh, so here's what he said about the negative temperature thing. Here's his that, understanding. And again, wow. Uh, that was a, that we did really go off book there. So he says, you mentioned the Boltzmann distribution where particles prefer a lower energy state. So if you think of temperature as the number of particles that are in a higher state, instead of thinking of it as how you feel, this finding is easier to comprehend. Schneider, who's the uh, scientist, created an environment where particles prefer to be in a higher state. So temperature would then be the number of particles in a lower state, making it negative. Hope this helps. Okay. Uh, and it kind of does, but... Hmm. Still, See, that's still the same understanding. how he created that environment. Uh, uh, Dylan also said he just used our Amazon link to purchase his MCAT study materials. So thank you, Dylan. Oh, thank you. For science, and thank you anyone else who's buying anything off Amazon and goes via our website and clicks on the Amazon link because we get a little bit of commission from that. Yeah, we, we really, really appreciate it. And again, we cannot see what you buy. We cannot, it does not show us what you it, it, Nope. It just does not show us. So, uh, um, no, I'm, I'm serious about that. It's like a, some sort of, that's crazy, some sort of NSA thing. Um, uh, so listen, um, yes. here's what I wanted to talk about. Yes. I, what happened? Uh, I wanted to talk about something a while ago, a little update, cause we found something new about the life of Jesse case. Uh, a, a few episodes ago it was the episode with Tara Flynn. 
Jesse described a mishap on the way to an audition. Mm-hmm. You can. Li- I highly recommend you listen back. It was. Yeah, I mean, the- we won't spoil it for anyone, but I was spoiled. I spoiled myself. He was spoiled. He he ended up in a maybe. If if we get our shit together, we'll cut in a little bit of that interview and we'll just play it right then, so we can just get a little recap of what happened. I don't know, but we also I'm not sure how much of this I can talk about. Oh, can you not? No, I mean I can talk. I can we can discuss things. I just I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. I know the 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 audience has a confidentiality thing that they've. Guys, the thing went well. I you know you heard the interview, the Tara Flynn interview. I auditioned for a thing. He auditioned for a thing where he he coated himself in. It's very old piss. Very old piss. Guys, okay, <laughs> if, just, you, if you haven't heard the episode, I mean, we're just... What happened was I, I remembered that I had a Febreze thing in my car and I wanted to smell good for the audition and all this is... Every, everything leading up to it is already a terrible idea. And I just uh, forgot that I peed in the Febreze bottle. I sprayed myself in urine. <laughs> and um, I went into that audition covered with piss. Now... I assume because of that, they thought, you know, this guy's making a statement. He's making a statement. <laughs> it's one of those bold audition moves that you a- hear about that people sometimes do. Like, yeah. Like, it's, it's the audition equivalent of that what is courage essay. Absolutely. This is. Yeah. Send no. it in. Yeah, good the, call. He got an A. Yeah. <laughs> that got that guy into Harvard. That, never, that story has never happened. No one has ever actually done that. That no. has never been said as an essay question. No. Um, what is courage? Fuck you, cunt breath. Like, that would have been yep. better. I think that would have been a... Yeah. I don't even know if that is courage. Just a picture of a dick. Just a picture of... Yeah, but I'm not sure if that even counts. I, I, w- let's talk about this in a second. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, uh, they called me back, and not for the thing that I went in for, but they are like, hey, we like you anyway, um, so come do this thing. So I'm going to be doing a thing, and it might lead to another thing. Don't worry, I'm not leaving the show. I know 70% of you were cheering for that. But the other 30%, don't worry, I'm not. Uh, it would all be here in L.A. anyway. And um, Now, are you a little bit worried that when you turn up for work, having successfully got this job? Uh, I'm going to spray myself again. Okay, so you're not, you're not, because I was a little bit worried that you show up and you sort of read for them and they'd be like, he's missing, he had something. There was something about him. There was something in the audition that uh, just je ne sais quoi. isn't there he, anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I've obviously... See, the thing that worries me, though, is I just found this out, that, um, that they want me for this thing. So I, I didn't have enough time to properly let it wait two weeks again to pee in a bottle. <laughs> but I did immediately pee in a Febreze bottle, and I have it kept in the car. So you got it ready. Yeah, I've got it ready. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to douse myself again before I get in there. <laughs> um, it's going to be solid, but I, um, I am nervous about it. It's in front of a live studio audience. Um, it's one of those old school sitcoms, TV show sitcoms. See, I've never done one of those. I've never done a live audience taping of anything active, but I would have thought as much as there's the extra pressure of you've got fewer chances to screw it up because it's all live and everything. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought as someone who is an experienced live performer, Mm -hmm. the existence of the audience will give you a little bit of extra confidence in that you, you probably will have as much, if not more, experience in front of an audience than anyone in the cast. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, um, I, I know certainly if I were going into that situation, that would make me... The confidence that gives me would make up for the lack of confidence of being a less experienced actor. Yeah. I mean, I got, I, dude, I got no acting chops. I have no idea what I'm doing. Everything that I've ever been called in for, they just want me to play myself, basically. Right. I mean, th- no one's ever tested my range. 
you know, like this, he's a demented, uh, this is a demented Polish cello player. Like no one's ever called me in for that. They don't look like, at me and see that, you know. Um, There's a bit of a stretch, Jesse, but uh, this character, this character spread himself with shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I've never. This guy's, uh, this guy's got more of a jizzy scent. Yeah, I've never sprayed myself with shit, but I have pooped in a car. Um, I've absolutely into another Febreze bottle. Not in a Febreze bottle, into a um, in a subway bag. <laughs> um, <I've laughs> Look, man, it gets weird out there. You've been on the road; it gets weird. And I and I, um, yeah, no, I, I pooped in a I pooped in a Febreze bottle. And let me tell you, or not in a Febreze bottle, in a, in a subway bag. Um, and uh, I will tell you though, it turns out that you need to be walking a dog to carry around a bag of poop. <laughs> People frown on it if you just have the bag of poop walking around a city that you're unfamiliar with. Um, you, how, how long was it before you successfully disposed of this bag? It was about one minute. I mean, I, I, it was one of those things, it was seriously, where I, I pulled up into a gas station, saw a dumpster. I thought, I even planned my trajectory. You know, how, yeah. to, how to... You sort of got the car positioned as close to the... Yeah, and then it was, a, then it was a locked dumpster. Because, um, you know, I couldn't see the lock from the car. So then, then I had to, of course, drive around some more and find it. But it's very difficult getting rid of a bag of poop. <laughs> um, and I don't see the big deal anyway, man, of like just not. I always think about this of like, like I pee outside quite a bit. People are going to think I have some sort of weird thing. <laughs> with just, but like to me, it's, it's who cares? It's, it's like this thing. It's, I, don't think, I don't think peeing outside is that weird. I mean, it depends. Like there's a big difference between in the woods up against a tree and in Manhattan out of a window. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is a big difference. Also, I mean, th- the story about the Febreze bottle, that's more the, that's the exception, not the rule. Right. You know what I mean? That was a, a weird freak occurrence. Well, because that would get expensive over time if you had to continually buy more Febreze. Well, you, you wouldn't. I mean, you would just, you would just, you would keep, just keep spraying it out. Keep and... spraying it out. The end of every day, you would have to spend about half an hour emptying it only by spraying. You're not going to pour it out. No unscrewing anymore. No, you have to. Even spray though it. you're very aware that the lid does unscrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to spray it. Um, no, I, I, uh, like I pee outside, you know, pretty often. And, um, you know, in the backyard. And right. the, uh, the neighbors get upset sometimes because the neighbor saw me one time peeing in the backyard. And I think, like, we should. We should just, it's completely, no one's going to come with me on this point, but it's completely biodegradable. It's completely green. Peeing and pooping. Both of those things should be done outside. We waste an insane amount of water. Yeah, unless there's, like, in city, like, in large developments. Like, I know the Glastonbury Festival, for example, which... By the way, if any of our uh, listeners are going to be at Glastonbury, I'm going to be performing there on the cabaret stage at some point in the middle of, I think it's Saturday early evening. I don't have exact time yet, but go and see me there at the end of June. But yeah, at Glastonbury, which is essentially a big farm on which... Disease, of course. Well, not just that, but over something like 150,000 people descend on this. It's a huge festival. Yeah. And they have signs everywhere saying, please don't piss it outside because it because by the time you have that many people in that condensed yeah, area yeah it gets washed into the streams and pollutes the streams and the groundwater and of course fucks everything up but yeah if it's the occasional pissing on on a tree the occasional bush yeah i'm for it i'm okay with it absolutely i'm I in think, favor of it I'm, I, I think we should be and i think it's weird that we 
I just don't know how when indoors got invented, that made it into the list of things to do indoors. Like, when we invented the concept of inside as a concept 15,000 years ago. Well, that said, it's definitely a comfort thing. Like, I would... I'm happy predominantly shitting indoors. How much I'm, also, of a, I'm going to go on the record and say that. Yeah. Now that's something you no, know about me. me too. Me too. But how much of a dick was the first guy with an indoor toilet? It'd be like the first guy with an elevator in his house. You know what I mean? It'd be like, really? You're going you're gonna to shit inside, you fucking lazy asshole? Like, how much of an asshole was that guy? I don't know. I mean, well, actually, hang on. Back in the day, before they, that wasn't even op- an option, didn't the writ... The wealthier people, didn't they just shit in pots underneath their beds and then the maids would come and empty it in the morning? Yeah, you'd have a chamber pot, but then, uh, you know, outhouses, things like that. Yeah, I guess you're right. Good call on the chamber pot. Good call. So they were, they were, shitting, in the, they were shitting indoors anyway. It was just the, that's ludicrous. an upgrade. Ludicrous. And that's worse because that's just a bowl of it sitting underneath your bed as far as yeah, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Did I ever tell you? Man, we got to do science stories. I'm sorry. We do, but I... I I'm always up for hearing another one of your stories of what you've done in your life. Well, <laughs> um, this is my first, uh, it's a story about my first sleepover I ever went to. Um, it was traumatizing and I didn't go to another sleepover for years and years and years. Um, and it, it's still, I still get uncomfortable with people sleeping over. Um, you know, even some of them, uh, you know, you would consider a, a partner. Um, I get very uncomfortable. Right. Um, with, with sleeping around people. I, need, I like to be in my own room. I don't like sharing hotel rooms. Uh, my first sleepover, I'm an only child. Okay. okay. Um, my, first, uh, my first sleepover, I was like five. And I don't even remember being friends with this kid, but it's one of those things where when you're that age, your parents just tell you who your friends are. Yeah, you're going to sleep at Kevin's now. Yeah, you don't actually connect with them on anything because you have no life experience. Um, but it was this, this cross-eyed kid named Rusty <laughs> and uh, I was apparently going to go to his birthday party and then spend the night. I don't remember agreeing to a sleepover. I don't remember knowing what it was. And my mom uh, dropped me off there and took off. And um, it was at a trailer. And I remember there were so many people there. His parents were wasted. He had these terrible, abusive parents. And, uh, my mo- you know, my mom just left me there. I didn't know. You assume every family's like your family when you're a child. Right. Um, so I'd never seen any of this, you know. And I show up, and his dad was literally drunk and shooting bottles behind their trailer. And it was all these kids with rickets running around. You know, it was a terrible situation. And um, for some reason, I was the only one that spent the night. All the other kids just <laughs> fucking left. And I had to spend the night in this trailer with this kid, Rusty, that I didn't really know, who my mom said was my friend, <laughs> and his awful parents and uh, his brother. And they shared a room. They had beds, side-by-side beds with this little gap in the middle, and I slept in the gap. Now, so I was sleeping on the floor between them, and I remember having to pee. So I was getting up to go to the bathroom to pee, and they said they can't, I can't go pee because if I, I, I'm not allowed to leave their bedroom at night or their parents beat them if anyone leaves the room. So wow. Very intense, right? So I was like, oh, wow, what do I do? And they go, well, we, we pee in this shoebox, so they had a shoebox of piss that I peed in and then laid down. And then the brother, Ricky, Rusty's brother, Rusty and Ricky, had to, had to poo. And he pooed in another shoebox. But they leave these shoeboxes, chamber pot style, under the bed. So next to my head as I'm trying to sleep. I didn't sleep a fucking wink. And I, I, I didn't even know my phone number. You know, it's before cell phones. I didn't even know how to get out of there. And I just thought, well, this is it. I have to live with these people forever now. 
I didn't even know the concept of a sleepover. I just thought this is my life. <laughs> you know, it's like when you take a dog home from the rescue, they don't know what's happening. Um, I'm beginning to kind of see why you might have problems around sleeping at other people's houses now. It was really traumatizing, man. It, it, it actually really fucked me up. I was like, I just didn't do another sleepover for years. Um, so anyway, a little chamber pot story. Still happens in uh, abusive trailer families in the South. Um, so there it is. You know, Matt, <clears throat> if you had a time machine, uh, what, what would you do with it? Uh, probably nothing, because don't you screw everything up if you get in a time machine? Let's say it doesn't. Let's say there's no grandfather paradox. Uh, um, what, what would you do with that time machine? Probably be pretty impressive at, at predicting eclipses and become king of somewhere. You, you wouldn't do anything, uh, not for your own game, but anything that would possibly, possibly help the world? Uh, any, any sort of... Well, I don't know, because there's the whole killing Hitler thing. See, I would definitely kill Hitler. You would kill Hitler. Now, Hit- but but, but I, I only say that because Goebbels would have ran a more efficient Eastern campaign. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quitting comedy now. Um, no, a lot of people say they would, uh, they would kill Hitler, and um, I think there's some evidence now that they might not have had to. Um, really? Should the... Should the uh, that doesn't even make sense at all. I guess the point of killing him would be before the war. You don't just go in and kill him five minutes before he died anyway. <laughs> just kidding. Just to kill him. Just, oh, you fucking Hitler. You asshole. Um, no. People in the future will disrespect your name. Right, <laughs> right, right. You're going you're gonna to virtually extinguish a whole style of mustache. Um, <laughs> uh, no, so it's oftentimes been debated, hey, Hitler seemed to be going a little nuts towards the end. More nuts than his usual Hitler self. Yeah. He also had some, uh, some tremors, well-known hand tremors. And a lot of this is thought, well, perhaps neurological dis- disorders and things uh, that he caught during World War I after having been gassed. Um, new proof that Hitler uh, indeed had Parkinson's disease. Really? This wasn't even a theory I was aware of. Well, it's been debated oftentimes. Um, you know, by the end of his life, Hitler had a pronounced tremor in his hands, especially his left hand. And in his military decisions, he'd become blindly inflexible. He was unable to base his decisions on the reality of the situation uh, in the field. While early on, you know, he was, he was quite a, a decent, by actual strategic standards, decent military commander. Right. Um, and that wasn't just a result of just becoming a megalomaniac, egomaniac, and having no one tell him no and that kind of thing. Um, no, I mean, I think he would listen to some people around him. He, he right. still had chiefs of staff and things like that. Um, but it raises a question. Uh, lies somewhere between history and medical diagnosis. Div, did Hitler have Parkinson's disease? Uh, and if he did, did the illness play a part in the end of the war? So Dr. John Murphy, he's executive uh, vice president of Danbury Hospital, has looked at photos, eyewitness accounts. He's taken that evidence and connected it with his own experience as a neurologist who has many patients with Parkinson's. And he's come to a conclusion, yes, Hitler did have the disease, and yes, it played a part in history. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking, well, that's not proof. That's a guy's theory. There's some proof coming. Um, it's a little bit off the wall, Murphy said to a packed crowd at a talk last month at Founders Hall. He said that Dr. Abraham Lieberman, one of the giants in the study of Parkinson's disease, was the person who first raised this issue. Um, and they then made a bet. Uh, Murphy would study the evidence to see if Lieberman was right. And after years of reading, he lost the bet. He was convinced. Um, Murphy said some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, a progressive degenerative disorder of the nervous system, are easy to recognize. They include a tremor that gets worse over time, usually starting on one side of the body and spreading to the other, um, a slow gait, a stooped posture, a voice reduced to a whisper, um, a dull stare that does not seem to focus on its surroundings, which, of course, these things, you know, Hitler being a a famous orator, um, and then that declining as well, and he became a completely different person by the end of the war. 
So, huh. um, do we have proof here? And this is sort of a new uh, discovery. It's a little tied in with history. Uh, well, it's all tied in with history, but... Um, so it's, it's often been thought that Hitler suffered from idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Um, there's been no indication for post-encephalatic uh, Parkinsonism. Um, Professor Max DeCrinis established his diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in Hitler early in 1945 and informed the SS leadership, who decided to initiate treatment with a special uh, prepared anti-Parkinsonian mixture to be administered by a physician. However, Hitler never received the mixture, this implies that the SS intended to remove, uh, to remove him, as there have been a lot of these plots have been uncovered, of course, that uh, several people in his circle were trying to kill him towards the end. Um, and uh, anyway, this has also all been theoretical based on things at the Nuremberg trial and all of that, um, and SS documents uh, stating the mixture and everything. But uh, just recently in, I think, Vindehoven, uh, they uncovered the actual some of the actual vials and have tested them and everything, and uh, it was indeed anti-Parkinson medication that they were hiding from him. Um, really? Proving that he had a... Uh, this all lines up with the his personality. Could lead to a better explanation of the pathological traits. Um, and the theory is that it started around 1923 is when his first symptoms, you know, through video evidence and everything, first symptoms of tremors and eye twitches and things like that, um, so there you go. Yeah. So, you know, kind of not his fault, really. Think about it. <laughs> or, or maybe it's just, you know, it gives you something else that you can use as a nickname for people with Parkinson's. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the guy's got the Hitler shakes. Yep, good call. Good call. Man, that guy... Fuhrer wobbles. You know, you know what's interesting? With diseases like uh, Parkinson's and mm-hmm. things like that, is that was obviously a disease before it was named after someone. And then it becomes Parkinson's. Same with, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. And they tend to just then name it after the most famous person that has it. Well, it's either, it tends to be either that or I think more often the doctor who, or researcher who discovers it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, sometimes there are diseases. I mean, yeah, obviously it was, it was Dr. Uh, James Parkinson was the guy that... Was the, you said that authoritatively. I have no idea if you're joking. Uh, no, I think that I'm pr- fairly sure that's his name. Let me look it up really quick. I didn't mean to uh, misstate. No, that might well be the case. I just I wasn't um, sure if you were doing a bit. James Parkinson. Yeah, that's the guy. Oh, nicely done. Um, yeah, James Parkinson discovered a Parkinson's disease. But anyway, um, what about like there there are disease, Lou Gehrig's disease and things like that where I feel like it should just be named after the most famous person that has it. They should update it. The name should change. Uh, okay. Because people had it before Lou Gehrig, but now Stephen Hawking's more famous than Lou Gehrig. Although, here's the thing. I have heard various people say that what Hawking has is not the same. Really? Yeah, because... You say that very authoritatively, man. Because, and again, this is is going through memory, but no one lives beyond five or six years with Lou Gehrig's disease. Good call. Yeah. And Stephen Hawking was diagnosed something like 30 years ago. Uh, maybe even longer. He's been a... Maybe, I don't think... I, I can quickly find out, but he's, yeah, yeah. he's certainly, more than, certainly more than 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's a good call. I had no idea. I thought it was very firm that he had Lou Gehrig's. I had no idea. Um, there, there was a Stephen Hawking-related story this week. Was there? Yeah, and I, I wasn't planning on... Um, 
doing it, but because I hadn't read it yet, uh, he was diagnosed when he was 21. Oh, yeah. So he, oh, he yeah. was diagnosed with motor neuron disease when he was 21, giving him a life expectancy of two years. He is now 72. So, yeah. That's wow. Substantially longer than 30 years. That's 50 years he's lived with... Um, it says on, on Wikipedia he has a motor neuron disease related to ALS. Oh, there you go. There you but go. But it can't be exactly the same thing as Lou Gehrig's disease because right. he just wouldn't have lasted five years, let alone sure. 50. Of course. Of course. What, what's the Hawking-related... Uh... Well, he, he is terrified of artificial intelligence, apparently. He believes it could lead to the downfall of typical, mankind. Typical old man. Right. Well, <laughs> it's just it's weird how anything he says, people just think it has a scientific theory behind it because just, he's such a genius. But if he's like like Stephen Hawking doesn't trust Asians, you know, <laughs> it's just he's just being an old guy. <laughs> like, let's keep in mind, he's also a super. Yeah, hey, I don't trust AI. <laughs> uh, he's, um, uh, he, he wrote an op ed for The Independent on Sunday. Uh, saying success in creating AI will be the biggest event in human history. Unfortunately, it might also be the last. He <laughs> lays out uh, the incredible technological advances that are currently taking place in AI, from self-driving cars to digital personal assistants like, like Google Now. He believes we're on the cusp of a kind of in- artificial intelligence that were previously exclusive to science fiction. And he's worried about it. He, he says... Wow. He lays out concerns that... Whereas the short-term impact of AI depends on who controls it, the long-term impact depends on whether it can be controlled at all. Sure. Uh, And he says we should think before we create. He advocates for more research into where robotics and artificial intelligence could lead. And he says whether you're a theoretical physicist or entrepreneur, he believes that when it comes to artificial intelligence, all of us should ask ourselves what we can do now to improve the chances of reaping the benefits and avoiding the risks. Wow. So there you go, Stephen Hawking, afraid of Skynet. Wait, well, I mean, I feel like sort of as you should be, right? I mean, we've discussed this before, the, uh, the singularity and whatnot. Um, but I think... It would already uh, have happened. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, computational self-awareness is pretty inevitable at some point. I don't know if it'll be evil. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it would be interesting. Uh, an interesting experiment would be the ultimate... If you had the ultimate hyper-intelligent machine uh, that, you know, every variable, every outcome of everything that could happen is automatically solved in its mind, um, would it keep living or just shut itself down um, based on futility? Would it reach a point where it realizes we're... Yeah. Uh, would it realize how fucked it is? It, was it walk, what's the um, Matthew Broderick film? Hmm. Matthew Broderick film. Uh, cable Guy. Absolutely. Thinking no, of cable. no, you're absolutely thinking of Cable Guy. No, funny movie, man. Funny movie. Underrated. Yeah, it was, it was War Games. It was Matthew Broderick. It was before he did Fred Oh, Fiona. yeah, 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 yeah. And I, where the computer, the supercomputer decides at the end. I'm spoiling, but... No, I don't, I don't think it's that I much. think it's fair to spoil a film that came out in 1983. But didn't it also have like this sort of Ender's Game twist where he thought he was playing a game? He was involved directly in the, in the process, right? I've never read or seen Ender's Game. But... I don't know. Uh, okay, well, well, what I mean is, like, uh, in war games, it's not like he's just... It's not like he's just watching two computers becoming self-actualized and fighting. He's playing a game. He's playing what he thinks is a game because he's this hacker guy. I think, doesn't, I think he 
they persuade the computer to play tic-tac-toe against itself. And he realizes, and that somehow links it to mutually assured destruction concept of nuclear war. And the computer realizes the only way to win is to not play. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it releases the missiles. It doesn't... Sure. Okay. But I think that it's not playing itself, though. He's still playing one of the sides. I don't know. I we'd have to, we'd have to rewatch the whole of War Games. We would. If any I'm of sorry. You re- I'm sorry. If any of you remember this, uh, email us at probablyscience at gmail.com and remember to mark your emails War, War Games. games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, wow. Well, uh, you know, there, AI could certainly be a problem in the future, I think. But, um, you know, there's still some problems we haven't solved about the uh, ancient past. Really? Yeah, it's Matt. A little history story. Well, I mean, Matt, uh, people still go on and on. How do these Egyptians make these pyramids? Was it, How do they make these pyramids? Was it, was it aliens? Was it uh, some sort of... I mean, how did, they, how did they do it? How did they do it? It was probably ancient aliens. I think there was, that's the only solution, right? That's what the orange hair guy with the big curly hair, or the orange face guy, yeah, the curly hair came up with. Yeah, it's the only solution. It's ancient the only aliens. way they could have done it. Well, and Matt... how would you move those big blocks across the desert? And there were other mound-like, pyramid-looking structures in completely different civilizations, Matt, that had obviously never encountered the Egyptians. Right. Now, I know the first structure that would occur to anyone is a pyramid, just to build on your own. That doesn't mean the aliens weren't there. <laughs> doesn't mean that the most <laughs> just logical, basic, tribal human instinct would be to build a pyramid as a structure. But, um, yeah, so... The ancient Egyptians who built the pyramids uh, may have been able to move How massive... How did they discover the cube? <laughs> <laughs> um, the circle. Nature's enigma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shout out to uh, Rubric, celebrating a... Um, who, who I think just passed away. Um, Rubik? Inventor of the Rubik's Cube. Oh, really? Yeah. He either just passed away or it was just his birthday. Big expose on uh, NPR about him recently. Um. Uh, Emery Emery, whose computer we're borrowing right now, or mm-hmm. whose system we're borrowing to record yes. this, has just sent me a thing. Yeah, we we already read out exactly that. Sorry, sorry. What, he's what just sent it? me the Stephen Hawking. He's just shown me the Stephen Hawking Wikipedia page. Oh, I thought. Yeah, that's exactly what we said. Oh yeah, related. I I thought we. He, um, he was half paying attention, but not enough to know. Yeah, Randy Gehrig's. That's what it's called. Um, <laughs> I, um, I thought he found the Squarespace read. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have wondered how the Egyptians actually moved, moved the stones. You know, you see different... Uh, I remember seeing different sort of painted depictions of it. Or if you watch, like, a History Channel show about the Egyptians, um, they have all this CGI, crazy, crazy big uh, systems. Um, but they... just, just very quickly to interrupt you. I'm sorry you're about to explain something. No, but... it's okay. Erno Rubik, the creator of the Rubik's Cube, is alive and his birthday is in July. So I have no idea what you, what was oh recent. Oh my god. Maybe it was the anniversary of the Rubik's Cube's invention. I'm going to get emails about this. Uh, mm. I don't know, there might have been a, Man, a new we, Rubik's story. Maybe it's the anniversary of the Rubik's Cube. When was it? No. Was it 84. If it Maybe was it was the anniversary of the discovery of the cube. Something like that, surely. And um, 
Man, there was just a... I'm serious, dude. This is like two nights ago. There was like an hour-long thing about it on NPR, and then they said really quickly at the end the reason they were doing the hour-long thing. Right. And I just spaced on it. I don't know. You it know, might well be the... Something it, happened. So look, guys, people out there, listen. Something happened with the Rubik's Cube. Um, but what happened with these pyramids, huh? Uh, the ancient Egyptians who built the pyramids may have been able to move massive stone blocks across the desert by wetting the sand in front of a contraption built to pull the heavy objects. It's a, um, according to a new study from the physicists at the University of Amsterdam, um, perfect place to just sit around and like think about pyramids, man. Just powerful structure. Hey, man. It's a lot of energy in there. We're shape. in Amsterdam, and just how they even get there, you know? <laughs> like, who even did it? You guys want to? Hey, we're physicists, man. <laughs> Let's just think about it. <laughs> um, uh, so, physicists at the University of Amsterdam investigated the forces needed to pull weighty objects on a giant sled over desert sand and discovered that dampening the sand in front of the primitive device reduces friction on the sled, making it easier to operate. The findings help answer one of the most enduring historical mysteries, how the Egyptians were able to accomplish the seemingly impossible task of constructing the famous pyramids. Uh, To make their discovery, the researchers picked up on the clues from the ancient Egyptians themselves. A wall painting discovered in the ancient tomb of... Oh, boy. Okay. Good luck. Jehudi-hotep. Jehudi-hotep. That was good. Jehudi... Jehudi Hotep. Um, Jehudi M. Night Shyamalan. Jehudi Hotep. Yeah, that sounds about right. Jehudi Hotep. Um, So a wall painting discovered in the ancient tomb of Jehudi Hotep, which dates back to about 1900 BC, depicts 172 men hauling an immense statue using ropes attached to a sled. In the drawing, a person can be seen standing over the front of the sledge, um, pouring water over the sand, said study lead author Daniel Bond. And they're sure that wasn't just to... Uh, oh, sorry, he's a physics, physics professor at the University of Amsterdam. But you sure that wasn't just to keep the sand cool? Well, I thought it was to throw them off the trail of this clue because the real one's in the Mona Lisa. <laughs> um, but, like, I've been to the beach... I mean, some beaches where they have something nice where they've got a hose with little holes pricked in it all the way... So they have a cold path of wet sand that you can walk down. Well, so no, I think... It, like, dry sand is really hot in the sun. I know, and I think they cared about these slaves' feet. I think that's, yep. that's something the... the, the <laughs> it does say here, Egyptologists thought it was a purely ceremonial act. Um, the question was, why did they do it? So, uh, Bon and his colleagues constructed miniature sleds and experimented with pulling heavy objects through trays of sand. When the researchers dragged the sleds over dry sand, they noticed clumps would build up in front of the contraptions, requiring more force to pull them across. But, you know, you add some water to the sand, increase its stiffness, and the sleds were able to glide more easily across the surface. This is because droplets of water create bridges between the grains of sand, which helps them stick together, the scientists said. Uh, it's also the same reason why using wet sand to build a sandcastle is easier than using dry sand. Um, but there's a delicate balance. You know, if you use dry sand, it won't work as well. Sand's too wet, it won't work either. There's an optimum stiffness. And we'll just uh, ignore all the jokes there. Um, (laughs) The study, (laughs) published April 29th uh, in the Journal of Physical Review Letters, may explain how the ancient Egyptians constructed the pyramids. I still don't don't know what you mean by optimal stiffness as a possible joke, but that's a great story there, Jesse. Thank you. No, that is good. Yeah, that is a good story. I don't know what I was was thinking about either. I was just thinking about necks or something. uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so sort of a... Funny uh, stiff necks. um, (laughs) Oh, really quick, man. Uh, I got a little correction, or not so much a correction, some agreement. 
I think. Oh, yeah? A little bit of agreement. Um, I was the opposite of a correction. That's great. Yeah. Well, I was wrong, of course, about um, uh, last week there was some talk about where the word goof comes from. Right. You know, does it mean, did it start in prisons? Right. And make its way out of prisons as what started as prison bitch. Obviously, that's not the etymology of the word goof, but it did make its way into the prisons where it has a different meaning. Right. Um, Chip Cherry, regular, uh, regular listener Chip Cherry wrote in, and um, he grew up in the country in Ontario, and he says near Owen Sound, if that matters. Of course it matters, my friend. Um, and he, you know, he says there it was no big deal uh, to say the word goof. Not, not a big deal at all. Um, but then when he went to college, he met some guys from Mississauga, which is uh, pretty much Toronto, and he called one of them a goof, and the guy wanted to like beat him up because apparently he grew up in this sort of gang culture. And... Um, and once they decided not to get in a fight, they uh, discussed it with each other. And he said, like, where he's from, it's one of the worst things you can call someone else. And, um, you know, because of the uh, prison system there, and it does indeed mean a pedophile. But I tell you, and we got a few, few emails about this, about um, my grandfather. This isn't based on nothing. Uh, my grandfather, his name's Peter Hennessy, and he wrote a book about the Kingston Penitentiary. Um, he's one of the, he was one of the senior fellows at Queen's University. He's, he's, he was quite a big author. Um, All right. Um, he also wrote a fascinating book about the, uh, the RAF in World War II called Brother Bill, um, which is about Canadians in the RAF. But he, uh, yeah, he wrote a book called um, uh, In the Big House, and it's all about Kingston Penitentiary. I think that's, that's where I picked that up. It sort of had a bunch of their slang. Um, and uh, it's closed down now, KPH. It's closed down. Because I got another correction that said, you know, it's not so much of a big prison town anymore. Um, but, you know, I, I was, you know, I lived on Princess Street for a while, guys. You know? I can uh, hang. I can hang with the Kingstonians. Uh, Emery, as well, has just messaged in the middle, like, just texted me in the middle of this thing, uh-huh. claiming that slaves weren't the ones who, broke th- who built the pyramids, and recent discoveries suggest that the people were well cared for and were not slaves but volunteers who gained great honor for their work. I don't know whether that's actually come with any evidence there, Emery, or whether he's doing some the kind of revisionist is, historian. The, the evidence uh, is just the text? Like, yeah, all right, uh, look. He's, he's shouting out that there's evidence, but Ex- I think he's doing some kind of, like, no, they don't they doing it they like doing that kind of thing yeah you know, yeah just, been, i don't know i don't the, know if i buy that i don't know if i buy that i'm pretty sure uh, the, their, their living quarters were very good the way that they were buried was uh was was not the way they would treat slaves and reset saying uh, you could, right. not into the mic i, I don't know why he no. doesn't know this because it's his mic so you probably he's, he's saying he's, the living quarters were very good and they were buried uh in the in a way that you would bury someone who is well tr- respected what were the slaves for emory other stuff, slaving? I don't know whether or not there were uh, other slaves within the, um, uh, within the organization. Can we call it that? Well, I um, don't know if you've heard the story of Passover, but, yeah. <laughs> but do I have but, to sing the song? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I know nothing of them, but it's been, it's been uh, recently argued that the, uh, the compounds that they found where these people were, uh, were housed – uh, were not the kinds of places that they would keep slaves. So it seems it, like... It's kind the, of the type of place you would keep an alien? Yeah, I'm guessing that the slaves... <laughs> <laughs> mm. funny. Huh? I'm guessing the slaves were more likely uh, uh, there to wash the feet of the builders. Okay. Take that, Jew. Whoa. Oh. I didn't mean to run a J in there. I meant you. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. little roommate tension. All right. <laughs> um, little roommate tension. So... Uh, yeah, so, so I would love to see... We'll discuss citations on that later, but because um, I, I want to see some evidence of that. Um, I can't imagine the, Egypt, uh, the builders of the pyramids being treated well, but perhaps, yeah, perhaps 
sure. Sounds like maybe they were. So what do we know, you guys? What do we know? Not much. Also, is there a distinction between the the people who were like the foreman and the actual the craftsmen and the builders and the people who were lugging the stones? Well, that's what I mean. I it seems like the stone was... luggers would be, it's just a, it's a shit job. Yeah, like it, it, it's one thing being the person who actually puts the things in place and does the ornamentation and another thing being the person who has to drag a ton of stone across a desert. Right. No, absolutely. Those are big, uh, big rocks. And um, even bigger paper scissors. I don't know if you... <laughs> that was the... That was, the... A, that was a great link. That was a good link? It was a very good link. Uh, my favorite rock, paper, scissors game, obviously a very fun game of chance. Uh, my most favorite... Uh, my most favorite rock, paper, scissors game. Uh, the most infamous, of course, rock, paper, scissors loser being Michael Collins. The, um, the, uh, the guy that had to stay in the rocket... On Apollo 11. Um, no one gives a shit about that guy. I, I feel like... I love it if it just wasn't any meeny, money mo that they just decided on. No, but, dude, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, man. I think I would rather not go to space than be the third guy on Apollo 11. Really? It takes four days to get back from the moon, Matt. And you, you have to spend it with... You have to spend it in a capsule with two guys that just did the biggest thing humanity's ever done. Like, it's annoying enough being in a car with people that were at a party you weren't at, you know, and they're like, hey, remember that girl flashed everybody? And you've got to sit there like, well, I wish I was there. <laughs> but, but these guys are like just high-fiving those, dude! <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know, man. Poor guy. Well, also, we, we talked about this on the show before. He's, he was the second-ranked member of the crew. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. He like was. Buzz Aldrin. I'm clearly just doing a little riff here, but but, yeah. but, st- but still, like it, Michael Collins was ranked higher than Buzz Aldrin. Was, yeah, he yeah. outranked him. It was a more imp- considered a more important, more senior role to be the, of course, commander of that rather than the pilot. Um, and even Neil Armstrong piloted the lunar lunar lander. I mean, he was the he was the first pilot of also on the lunar landing module. Um, so yeah, Buzz Buzz was the third in command, but he gets remembered as the second man on the moon. Your friend, Buzz Aldrin. My friend. My, my old buddy. My yeah. old uh, person. Who, did, it, did I ever tell you that the way that show turned out? Because I, I did the Nerdist show with Buzz yeah, Aldrin, yeah. And, I, and I opened my set referencing. I think I had a joke about Michael Collins. I think I had a joke about how I've been to the moon as many times as Mark, Michael Collins. Yeah. Uh, and, and I had a whole little bit about that. And, but I started with, like, I just met Buzz Aldrin. Blah, and that was my opener. But there was a problem with one of the sound on a different recording. So they moved my set up. So my set ended up in a different episode of the show. Which oh, Buzz Aldrin wasn't on. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so I opened my set with this really weird bit about Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and... And as a result, I, I had one of the best TV sets I ever had, I think. That was a really strong set. Yeah, And I've yeah. never had such a mixed response in terms of, like, it was sort of 50-50 looking at Twitter responses between people who really like what I did and people just going, oh, oh shit, what the fuck was going And I think a lot of it was down to just uh, the most bizarre... Why, do, why is he bragging about meeting Buzz Aldrin for no reason? <laughs> it's just wow. Oh, because it happened a minute ago on the episode that you that didn't quite 
cut together that way. Wow. Wow. But anyway, uh, my old buddy, Buzz Aldrin, uh, I mean... Uh, I had no idea that they cut it like that. Yeah, there was a, there was a problem with the sound on one of the other stand-up sets that they recorded on the season. Uh, and it was the stand-up set that was meant to be the first episode. Okay. So, so they, they just you guys so out. they just switched me out, which again was like a vote of confidence. They're like, hey, "That was a really strong set. They liked it. They, I, it, they, so we'll put you for the season opener." Yeah. And but then you just did then, this weird. I just <laughs> I just met because the thing is, it <laughs> sounds like, like bullshit if you don't see it happen. On yeah, air. so it sounds like I'm sort of doing a. A something that happened to you this morning joke? Uh, yeah. I, crazy day I had. I met Buzz Aldrin. Like, <laughs> right. I, like I'm really, I just met Buzz Aldrin. Like, it's a, like a really wacky, surreal... Like, right. Kind of like, Man. I met Buzz Aldrin, and I saw a goat with a fish's head, and it was juggling. Sure, blah, 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 blah. Sure, sure, like, sure. It's just like, like my first surreal joke. <laughs> Man. Brutal. Brutal. But um, anyway... Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors. What are the odds? Uh, rock, paper, scissors... Uh, uh, what are the odds of winning rock, paper, scissors? Should one be. In, should be one in three. Yeah. Should be one in three. It, a game that's played ideally is one in three. Uh, uh, but it turns out people have patterns. People have tells. And researchers did a big study. These researchers in China at the Zhejiang University in China. And they recruited 360 students, divided them to groups of six. Each competitor played 300 rounds of rock, paper, scissors against other members. As an incentive, the winners were paid in proportion to the number of victories. So I guess to make sure they try to pl- play to win. Sure. And th- there was a caveat. Um, th- to, to play smart, classical game theory suggests players should completely randomize their choices. Yeah, the ideal, the ideal way to play the game is to have some kind of random number generator that just picks one, two, or three, and you just play randomly. That's the national equilibrium, which is uh, the game theory concept of the perfect, the perfect way to play the game, the best way to play the game in classical game theory. And that's that's known as the Nash equilibrium. Yep. Who was uh, named after Russell Crowe, the actor? Named after the actor Russell Crowe from and a the character he invented for SNL or some such. Yeah, it was from the. Uh, he just did that documentary Noah. He was just yeah. in the Noah documentary? So the guy from the Noah documentary also had a comedy character that he did for a while called uh, Nash. Called Nash. Called uh, John Forbes Nash. And that was, Nash was a... Uh, they made a movie about Nash, though. That was, well, it spun off into a movie, yeah. No, it spun off... Uh, there was a movie, Nash, was sort of about uh, the field hospital in uh, Vietnam type... Yeah. Um, you met Buzz Aldrin, man. So, <laughs> um, so it turns out people don't play randomly, though. Um, a new study has revealed this. They follow hidden patterns uh, that you can predict. Winners tend to stick with their winning action, while losers tend to switch to the next action in the sequence, rock, paper, scissors. And uh, anticipating these moves could give you a winning edge. That makes total sense to me, that you would just keep going in that rotation. Um, Yeah, so so people who win once think, why mess with the formula? And people who lose, they, apparently they move on to the, yeah, the next one. So rock goes to paper, paper goes to scissors, scissors goes to rock. Yeah. Um, the, the Chinese tournament, uh, this tournament they stage, um, the players in all groups chose each action about a third of the time, exactly as expected if their choices were random. Um, but that may have been more the result, not the cause, because uh, on closer inspection, the organizers noticed a surprising pattern of behavior. When players won around, they tended to repeat their winning rock, paper, or scissors more often 
uh, than would be expected at random. Losers, on the other hand, tended to switch to a different action, uh, and they did so in order of the name of the game. So after losing with a rock, for example, a player was more likely to play paper in the next round uh, than the one in three rules would predict. And this win-stay-lose-shift strategy is known in game theory as a conditional response, and it may be hardwired into the human brain. Um, anticipating this pattern and thereby trumping your opponent may offer higher payoffs to individual players. Um, the game of rock, paper, scissors exhibits collective cyclic motions, which cannot be understood by the Nash equilibrium concept. Uh, whether conditional response is a basic decision-making mechanism of the human brain or just a consequence of more fundamental neural, um, fundamental, yeah, a fundamental, you've heard fundamental. of those. Yeah, yeah, fundamental. Yeah, they, they have those in water now. Um, a fundamental neural mechanisms. Um, so whether, whether it's just a, a mechanism of the brain or a consequence of more fundamental neural mechanisms is a challenging question for future study. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, there was another study as well, uh, researching proceedings of the Royal Society from a few years ago, which said that people, players of rock, paper, scissors unconsciously mimic the actions of their opponents. That's another thing that happens where they will unconsciously do the thing that the pre that your opponent previously did mm -hmm. and I had a quick look at the wikipedia page for rock paper scissors about tactics that players have used in contests because they do have competitions they do this. have contests yeah some players apparently employ tactics to confuse or trick the other player into making an illegal move resulting in a loss one such tactic is to shout the name of one move bef before throwing another in Whoa. order to misdirect and confuse their opponents and it also says during tournaments players often prepare their sequence of three gestures prior to the tournament's commencement. Wow. That makes sense, because... I, I think it would be illegal to shout the thing. To shout a thing. I guess you know? it depends on the specific rules, but, but that does definitely make sense to prepare in advance, because the last thing you want to do is allow yourself to be swayed by what the opponent has done. Mm -hmm. If it's prepared in advance, and you kind of, you, it helps you avoid tells, so you just go, well, whatever happens, I'm going paper on this go. Yeah, well, that's how... This is ironic, because I'm awful at rock, paper, scissors, but I'm really, really good at fuck, marry, kill. <laughs> this is exactly how I play Fuck Mary Kill. When I do my Fuck Mary Kill tournaments, um, pretty much constant, constant winner. But you always do Fuck Mary Kill with a rock, a piece of paper, and scissors. I know, and that's a huge problem. And um, I'm in the ER quite a bit, but it's it's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you're aware this is generally meant to be a theoretical, like this is a hypothetical question rather. No, I'm really I'm legal about it. I uh, <laughs> yeah, I do it. Um, uh, we're going to put links to both those stories uh, and Wikipedia page as well on the Probably Science webpage, which uh, is, is square, Squarespace powered. What are you talking about? Well, here's the thing, Jesse. We recently updated our website. You might, have, you might remember when we first had the Probably Science things on the internet. They were all on a Tumblr page and it was mm -hmm. quite hard to access. Yeah, and it wasn't very that. pretty. It was just quite like, yeah. rubbish, really. Yeah, no, I, I hated it. I hated it, yeah. Uh, we use squarespace.com now, the website building website. Well, so if people want to find out about our show, Probably Science, they can go to squarespace.com. No, they don't even need to. They can go to probablyscience.com. We got our own name? We have our own name what? and we have our own website. It's different from all other websites, but we use the template that is included, of one of many, many templates that are included on the squarespace.com website. Uh, and it's extremely simple. It's just a click-and-drag interface. You choose your template, and you can, you can customize it. You can customize the colors and the shapes and all of, sorts. Of it's, the templates. It's super customizable. 
So wow. we've created what we think is a quite a pretty damn nice looking website. Mm, sounds Marathon. too hard for me. Too no, hard. It's no, it's very easy. No, it's extremely easy. No, this even is even a kind of, moron could do it. A this, fucking idiot could. This do is it. some kind of Stephen a Hawking. Fucking stupid fucking idiot could do a, it. A mong twat could do this. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring slurs into it. But uh, is that uh, really? Did I slur? I think mong is. Mong's a slur? Yeah, yeah. I've always found it super funny, but I've only seen it on like British stuff, so I didn't know who I was offending. <laughs> Does it mean mongoloid? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. I think mongoloid's so old, it's not a slur anymore, surely. Well, I don't know. I think, I think, I think it's still sufficiently connected to the original meaning. I know Ricky Gervais got into trouble with that a while ago. He got in trouble for Mong. Yeah, because he also accompanied it with a picture of him doing a face. Okay, sure, sure, and you, sure. And then you, it, that makes it a lot harder to claim that it's not connected to the original meaning when you sort of go, well, that's, you're doing the face as well. What was like, the original meaning? Uh, it was... I'm mentally handicapped. For, no, it's slang for someone with Down syndrome. Really? Yeah. See, I'm learning a lot here. Now I feel like a huge dick. I thought uh, I, you can't use dick either. Okay, why? Because uh, that comes from Dick Van Dyke, the actor who... No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know it was slang for just Down syndrome. I just thought it meant a, you know, I just thought it meant like a goof. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop you there again now. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jesse, Jesse, slow down. Um, um, but if you were a mong, could, could you use Squarespace? <laughs> probably. You probably. It's a, it's a very easy website to use. We use it, and we recommend you do as well. And if you want to use the website, you can use uh, our offer code. If you go to squarespace.com, and put in the offer code probably science, you get 10% off any purchase. And already pretty reasonably priced, but even cheaper if you use our code. And well, you get a month's I, free trial. Yeah, I mean, a, a free trial would certainly sweeten the pot. A free trial sweetens the pot a lot. Mm-hmm. One of the sweetest pots around. And we've talked about some sweet pots in this episode. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. You're going to, um, yeah, you're going to want that. Uh, you're gonna, I was just about to make another. I couldn't decide. Here's how the brain of a comic works. Is that is sometimes you just double down yep. <laughs> when you do something. So, like, um, I was unaware that Mong was such a slur. Good to know. Right. But I seriously, I seriously never mean to offend. Um, and, I'm, and I actually mean that. So uh, I apologize for that. Um, and, you know, uh, I've learned a little bit there. But my, still, my, my weird comic rebellious brain was like, just, just go for big air on this last one. <laughs> just, uh, so, say it one last time. Just, <laughs> just really get it out there. Um, so, and I, you know, I back down. I back down, and I think it's a sign I'm getting older. Um, Matt, I feel like, uh, here, well, we have to cover this because people will be mad if we don't. Uh, we got a ton of emails about this. Um, I don't even really have much of a segue into it. Um, Obviously, uh, there's a, a new... Uh, what's, your, what's your favorite Bruce Willis movie? Uh, I, I, I think Die Hard's a great film. Die Hard. Uh, he did some stuff after that, more sci-fi type stuff. More sci-fi? Yeah. Was it 12 Monkeys? No, no, a little bit after that, I think, maybe. A little, he did a big, big uh, sci-fi thing. It was Gary Oldman was in it. I forget the name. It was, um, it was Gary Oldman and... Uh, you know, he was like a taxi driver, but then he like, gets, gets this girl that's like, uh, she's like a red-headed girl in a sleazy outfit. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Is anybody, Emory, you know what I'm talking about? Was, it, was this the fifth element? Oh, yeah, 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 the fifth element. Man, do you know they discovered a new element? The uh, 117th element, man. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, um, yeah, um, and they've just named it. Um, there's a new element, and uh, it's the heaviest element ever seen. And they named it. Really? So they named it Unopseptium. Uh, so un- 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 is. 
Well, all the all the elements, if I remember rightly, they're sort of placeholder name until they get a, an official. Yes. Until they get named after something or someone or whatever. Yes. They just that's just the Latin for their atomic number. So that's 117 in ununceptium is 117. Are you serious? Yeah, that's what that it sounds is. sounds like a joke name, like, no. a, like an unacceptable type So name. I remember, yeah, ununnium is the, is, is the 111th element and so on. Uh-huh. Uh, so they just, they just give them the name, yeah. the placeholder name of whatever their atomic number is. That's sort of their address in the periodic table, pretty much. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. That makes, that makes perfect sense, of course. Uh, it's, um, so it's, it's been tricky to, uh, identi- to verify the existence of super heavy elements, as this, this element is, um, obviously, because it, uh, it was produced by smashing together um, thousands of calcium-48 and berkelium-249 atoms, and is about 40% heavier than lead. Um, not that you'll get to see the fruits of that labor in person, of, of making this element. The team created just four atoms, and those examples decayed into other elements within milliseconds. Oh, God, you have to be annoyed. I know. Oh, I had them. I mean, it's hard to keep track of four atoms as it is. No, oh, absolutely. And then absolutely. you put them somewhere, and then they've just gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Gabona, by the way, cover regular listen to the show, was one of the people who sent this story. I'm sorry if you were another person, and I missed you out. Oh. Well, um, yeah, I think we got it from a few people. Um... But even so, even if it, it only exists for these milliseconds, um, uh, even so, that should be enough to get element 117 both a proper spot in the periodic table and a better name than the rather awkward unacceptium. Uh, the decay also produced isotopes of additional elements whose half-life could be measured in hours, which is exceptionally long, and that suggests that they are undiscovered super-heavy materials that could be relatively stable. So... Uh, yeah, a little update there. Yeah, this is something... Mike, the... Michael Gabotter in this did send a link to this other thing, this concept of the island of stability, which is something I hadn't really heard about before, but I was generally led to believe after a certain point, the larger these atoms, nuclei, beget, the less stable they are. Right. Uh, almost entirely, and just... And the heavier these things are, the more chance there is they'll just decay into nothing, and they'll, you, you can't sure. keep them for any amount of time. Why they exist so rarely, and you, you can just you can only make them by smashing together other atoms, and then they just they very quickly decay back into smaller atoms again. Uh, but there's this concept called the island of stability, which is a set of as yet undiscovered heavier isotopes of transuranium elements. So bigger that theorized to be much more stable it's than some pro- of those. It's a very progressive uranium, right? Uh, uh, specifically, they're expected to have radioactive decay half-lives. You just bailed minutes. on a tag. I, I just did. saw you bail on a tag. <laughs> oh, I, was, I be- Not even a tag. I bailed on a... I'm not even going to go. Uh, specifically, they're expected to have radioactive decay half-lives of minutes or days, with some optimists expecting half-lives of millions of years. Uh, so, these, um, so these are larger-than-uranium atoms, which could be very stable. Uh, Klaus uh, Blaum, uh, one of these physicists who've been, who's done work on this, expects the island's stability to occur in the region near um, 300 um, unbenillium, which again, which is the element with 120 atomic numbers. So 120 protons and 180 neutrons. Wow. So 300, an atomic mass of 300 yeah. and 120 of those are the protons. Uh, so somewhere around there, that may be the point at which those atoms become stable again. 
I have no idea why. Interesting. I have a question. Uh, Emery has a question. Emery has a question. You are the one that even taught me how to understand anything about um, these uh, the, the periodic table. You you remember. I, I do remember that conversation. Okay. And uh-huh. so one thing that you guys said a minute ago is that the new element is the heaviest ever found. Uh, and it's number 117. Uh-huh. Um, I have a question for Matt on this that I, I know you'll know the answer to. It seemed to me like a joke when you said that because it seems like every time you add um, uh, another uh, proton uh, and or neutron to something, it's going to become more heavy. So aren't they by default going to be heavier every time they find a new one? Isn't that the idea? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 This, is, this, is, this isn't... Um, <coughs> this, this isn't... A corollary question. Yeah, good. The, yeah, the thing that... Uh, the thing that's surprising or weird about this isn't the way, like, or its properties were, its existence was known. It, it's not, it's like, going, what's the next number after 116 was 117? Uh, but I think it's the fact that they've actually made it, they've actually created atoms in right. this element. Yeah, it's not, it's not the theory of it, because um, yeah. you go on forever. Yeah, I mean, you could you could certainly theorize. I don't know whether it would be stable or not, whether it'd be possible to produce. But you could certainly theorize an element with an atomic number of two hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty protons. But good luck making it. Uh, yeah. Oh, then again, maybe, maybe I don't know. I, I know we have some particle physicists and nuclear physicists who listen to the show. I know so little about these maybe, stuff, the periodic stuff. I'm awful at it. But uh, but maybe that those are theoretically impossible. I don't know whether when you reach that level of size where it, it can't be stable for some other reasons some quantum reasons or whatever i do not know hmm interesting interesting but but yeah it's it's not it's not weird that this thing can't exist also it can exist but it's the surprising thing is they've managed to get some and they, ha- they now have to add it to the periodic table it's about time scientists got some no matt <laughs> um <laughs> do we do we have to? How much time do we have for an extra story? I think we have time for one more story. Yeah, uh, there's there's one particular story that I'd like to cover. I'd like us to then. Uh, Let's do it. And it and it concerns lab rats and lab mice specifically, rather. Okay, uh, I'm on board. Because this is quite this is quite a weird and interesting story. This isn't this isn't this the story about our last time in Vegas, is it? No, 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 no. Those weren't that. Were, they weren't official lab mice anyway. Oh, this is a proper uh, these science are, these story. Are, yeah, these are lab quality mice. Do you think they still struggle the same way, though? Well, yeah, I don't know. It depends what, depends what experience we've done on them in months. But... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this could... This could mean that a lot of experiments have to be looked back over. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a really big story. <laughs> this is a really big story. Maybe we should have covered it higher up in the show, but I'm hoping people stuck it out and get to this. Well, I think it's a nice closer. You're troopers if you did. Thank you so much, everybody. And we're, and we're less skeleton crew next week, we promise. Uh, well, next week will be the live episode from Bridgetown, mm-hmm. uh, which, sadly, Jesse won't be able to attend because he's going to be I'm, too busy becoming a TV star. I'm going to be too busy becoming a hypothetical TV star. But It's a pilot, uh, people. It's a pilot. <laughs> this, uh, this is a study which found... Mice actually fear men, but not women, which is something that hadn't really been thought out about or studied. Game changer. Well, I think people generally assume that a human to a mouse is a human, whatever. Right. Uh, but uh, Jeffrey Mogul, a pain researcher at McGill University, was the lead author of the study and says, 
I think it may have confounded to whatever degree some very large subset of existing research. And this isn't limited to behavioral studies because the organs and cells are used in medical research as cancer studies. They often originate in rodents. If you're doing a liver cell study, the cells came from a rat that was sacrificed either by a man or a woman. As a result, its stress levels would be in very different states, uh, which could have an effect on the functioning of the liver cells in the later experiments. So this study was published in Nature Methods, uh, in which researchers used the mouse grimace scale, which apparently is a real thing, to measure pain responses in rodents. They're playing the troubadour on Saturday. (laughs) To measure pain responses in rodents exposed to men, women, or their respective smells. Pain is a proxy for stress, because stress can, to a large extent, numb pain. So when the mice were confronted with the smell of men, they experienced less pain, whereas the presence of women, or their smell, did nothing at all. This might seem like a positive effect, but think of it this way. When athletes, says this article in The Verge, when athletes get hurt during a stressful game, they often don't feel the injury right away, and they keep pushing. From an evolutionary standpoint, that's supposed to keep them alive by helping them focus on something other than pain. Yet in reality, it mostly ends up making the injury worse. Uh, but the pain wasn't the only indicator of stress in this study. Further experiments show that the rodents also had increased body temperatures and levels of corticosterone, a stress hormone, in response to the smell of men. And the effect wasn't just prompted by human males either. Rats and mice are afraid of the smell of males of any species, Mogul says, because the mice in this study reacted to the smell of male dogs, male guinea pigs, and male cats as well. Wow. So they think they react this way because of competition and not for any predatory reasons. Uh, male mice are territorial, and even when it comes to females ent- entering their domain, they also compete with males for mating opportunities, so it's probably a little bit evolutionarily adaptive to have this effect until you can determine that the male around you doesn't actually mean you any harm. So mice just haven't developed a way to discriminate, probably, between the smell of a male mouse and the smell of a male anything else. So men also elicit a fear response. I, now, first, I mean, the, the ramifications here are huge for science. But the first thing, obviously, is, is lab technicians and, and people working in these labs are going to have to start just dressing like giant mice right. to, to go to work, well, to well, do their it, job. Here are the ways to actually deal with it, because this, it goes on. This, this study is quite involved. The stress response isn't only dependent on the sex of the intruder but also in the circumstances of their approach. If you put a male-worn T-shirt and a female-worn T-shirt in the same room, the female T-shirt counteracts the effect of the male T-shirt. So this, according to Mogul, indicates that the solitary male represents the real threat. Now you've got two topless scientists walking (laughs) around somewhere. What's happening there? That's the story. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're assuming that scientists only own one T-shirt with fair cause. (laughs) <laughs> so a lone male is up to no good either hunting or defending his territory fortunately the male induced stress effect becomes less pronounced over time either disappearing, eventually disappearing altogether uh, this and the fact that women counteract the effect means there are a number of ways that researchers can prevent it from showing up in the data so here's how you counteract this you either get rid of all you don't have men go, doing this science or you have them chaperoned by women Or you have a male experimenter sit in the room for 45 minutes before collecting the data, which makes the problem go away. But Mogul doubts that anyone wants to do that because it's just boring. I I would take that gig. But he does... Yeah, be like a babysitter for a 
for the experiments. Just so sort someone of be- else just goes in there first to get them to calm down. No, it'd be just like a, a sex avatar. <laughs> a gender avatar. You know, you just yeah. sit there. It's, it's the best job ever. It's great. Hang, hang out with mice. Be there to be a guy. Uh, he does, what Mogul does hope is that his research and others like it will prompt researchers to report the gender of the experimenter in their publications. Because wow. so he says you don't have to go back very far to see studies where people didn't think the strain of mouse mattered or the sex of the mouse mattered, but these things all matter and could be addressed in statistical analyses. I hope they find other stuff that matters about the experimenter. So it'll be, it'll be like, uh, it'd be like, know, like Dr. Gustav who loves disco <laughs> has all, <laughs> are you wearing a hat? It doesn't, you cannot wear a hat near cock, hats near cockatoos. You will get indirect. No, you can't, you can't do it. Oh my God. But the, it, it is a really important thing because obviously one of the hallmarks of the scientific method, one of the most important yeah. Things about the scientific method is experiments and results must be reproducible. You must be able to replicate someone's results. Yeah. You mu- you should be able to follow their methods and come up with the same or at least very similar data. Otherwise, the science gets rejected. Uh, and this could go some way to explaining why d- seemingly identical experiments have produced different sets of results afterwards. Wow. I mean, I, I always knew that the mice vary. I mean, that's always been very obvious to me, just as a... Apparently, that wasn't something that was considered nearly as much as it should have been in past, in relatively recent history. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still as, in comparison to all the animals, you know, starting with, uh, or all the, all the organisms, you know, they would still be on the fairly higher order. I mean, I think, yeah, there, there's going to be... Of course, those things matter. The yeah. environments they're kept in, and things. Yeah. like they're they're you know fairly smart mammals. They, like you would definitely think so, but apparently it was it has not been considered nearly as much as it should have been. Wow, wow. Well, there it is, guys. So if you're a scientist and um, if you're a lonely male scientist and you're working with uh, you're working with mice, you finally have an excuse to to get old Shirley over there, take her top off. You know, <laughs> I don't think she necessarily needs to. I'm sure she definitely needs to have her top off. I think you just needs to have the top in the same room. Or just be in that room. No, it's definitely said to shirt it by itself. <laughs> shirt, this matters. <laughs> because, I'm not sure. No, I think it was the shirt because then the experimenters leave the room. Wasn't that the thing? Yeah, I think there are other ways other than just making the, the, the lady scientist take a shirt off. I don't think that was the main conclusion. I'm not sure that was the main conclusion. No, this is a whole thing. So this is a tricky front, front experiment <laughs> for, for these, these, lonely, uh, these lonely lab techs. That's what's happening. It did, it did say that uh, another way to counteract that is if the female scientists are hosed down in some way or, or, just, or just get on a trampoline near so that they're... Well, yeah, but, well, before every... Yeah, obviously... Just get on a trampoline near the cages. Near the cages, and this will counteract, of course, the, mare, uh, the male uh, pheromones. Yep. Um, any, any, sort of, um, any sort of self-drizzling and vegetable oil... <laughs> um, obviously helps dampen the, the smell. <laughs> or just just agreeing, just agreeing to go out to dinner with a male scientist just, just di- for once, just, just for once. once agreeing, just for once saying just 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 what it's just a just a dinner. Yeah, what yeah. is just a dinner? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, well, guys, I think that's going to be it for this week. Um, Wait, uh, I- Jesse, what do you got coming up? We don't have a guest to nominate us this. 
Oh, what do I have coming up? Yeah, what do I... Man, I got a lot more of these. I have uh, a million shows coming up. Um, starting in June, I get quite busy with uh, stand-up stuff. Um, as far as the... Um, okay, so August, um, August 11th through 17th, um, I, will be up in, uh, I will be up in Portland and uh, Seattle and doing all... That's my next big uh, Northwest run. Um, so please come see me there. I highly recommend it. I, I think quite a lot of our listeners haven't had the chance to see Jesse do stand-up, and I very much I recommend most, it. He's a mo- very funny guy. I think most of our listeners haven't seen any of us do stand-up, right? I, I don't say that's fairly likely. Huh? I say that's a, there's a fair chance. Yeah, yeah. I don't so, know. So yeah, go and see Jesse up in the Northwest. Um, yeah, do it. And then I've, I've of course, got, uh, I'm, you know, I'm up almost every night in L.A., so uh, just follow me on Twitter and stuff. That's at Jesse Case. And, and for the love of God, why don't you go see Matt Kirschen do some stand-up comedy, will you? I would like that a lot. Well, I'm going to be at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival. You may have heard about it. That's where Andy Wood already is, getting things ready and getting all things nice and set. Yep. But anyone who lives in or near Portland, I'm going to be there from this, from this Thursday, Thursday through Sunday, uh, doing plenty of shows and a live, probably, science taping on the Saturday afternoon. That's Saturday early afternoon. 1.30 p.m.? It's around that time. Double check on the website because I think the time's just been moved. But, uh, yeah, but, go but it'll, see- be ju- it'll be around lunchtime, just after lunch, on the Saturday afternoon. Yeah, and Portlanders, please go see, uh, please go see Matt and Andy both do, uh, do stand-up for yeah. the festival. Uh, come see that. And we, uh, we've Hang just out. confirmed one of our guests for Property Science in Bridgetown is going to be Paul Provenza. Great. The director and creator of the Aristocrats movie, along with many other things, a creative uh, producer set list... Original host of Comics Only, star of Northern Exposure. He's been he's been in everything. He's been yeah. in everything over the years. Paul Provenza is going to be one of our guests at Bridgetown. I'm very happy to have him. And also, I've just confirmed that on Friday the 30th of May, which is in three weeks' time, anyone who lives in or near Denver, I'm going to be doing one night there at the Grawlix oh, yeah. comedy show. Guys, go to that. Uh, I'm, which I'm, I'm not. I'm, uh, it's one of my favorite shows. I'm not being weird about it. That's uh, I'm not I'm not trying to pitch it. It's at the Bug Theater in Denver. It's one of my favorite shows. I've never done it, but I, I love Denver. I've performed in Denver quite a few times, and the guys who are involved in Grawlix, who also do sketch and other sort of comedy, as they're, they're great. They're hilarious people. They're really really funny. They made a, a pilot for Amazon recently that was that no, should have got picked up and didn't. It was great. No, those guys are incredible, incredible comics. And apparently their show is fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to doing that, and you'll get to see me do a headline set. You're gonna have them. a blast, and and you know what? If you want to loosen yourself up before you go up on stage at the Grawlix show, it's a big crowd. Big yep. crowd. You know, it's always sold out. You, you have a Lagunitas. I mean, that's a very nice mm-hmm. idea. Maybe, yeah, I, will. maybe yeah, I will. Although I don't ever drink before going on stage. Enjoy. But maybe I'll have one no, afterwards. No, me neither. But afterwards, enjoy a lovely Lagunitas. Maybe I'll have one of those. As always, any questions, comments, clarifications. We love it when you guys write to us. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of your stories and all of your emails, but we do hugely appreciate them. Uh, probably science at gmail.com <laughs> we, we email back we tweet back we, yeah, we, yeah. but we don't always get the and if we if we if by the way if you have donated and we've forgotten to mention you on the show we've done that a couple of times don't for a second think you're being rude giving us a nudge we apologize we, we sometimes miss emails yeah we want to mention you so just go hey fucker we, I gave you money and you what the fuck uh, we, we will we will make sure we, we catch up on that and, and if it, you didn't donate money stop calling us fuckers you can. We still like you. Sure, but sure. If you, but also, you can get on iTunes, give us nice ratings, write comments underneath. That really, really helps us spread the word, tell your friends about our show. Uh, probablyscience.gmail.com. Tweet us at probablyscience. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week.
Okay, how do we stop this now? I don't know. It's, whose computer is this? Emery? Do I just hit uh, the space stop. bar? Stop button. We hit stop. Just, just stop okay.